Bishop Joseph Tolton. Today's guest is the founder and president of Interconnected Justice. I see justice is a force uniting global racial justice movements in which the continent of Africa and its diaspora build an ecosystem. He is also an LGBT global faith leader. He'll also share his insights about his superpower. I'm your host, Devin Thorpe. Welcome to the Superpowers for Good show. Bishop, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm just thrilled to make your acquaintance and to learn more about the important work that you're doing. Devin, I thank you uh, for having me today. It's really a pleasure to be with you and your audience. Well, uh, tell us a little bit uh, about the great work that you're doing with IC Justice. Thank you so much. Interconnected Justice is a youth-powered network connecting people of African descent on the continent of Africa with those of us of African descent throughout the diaspora for the purpose of really reunifying people of African descent because we have so very much in common and we are stronger together. And it is very important in this age of globalization that we stand on the global stage together. And we do that work through practical and tactical campaigns in the area of advocacy and policy, media and culture, and also education and economics. So that's the kind of a broad description of the work that we do. But at its core, we are training the next generation of Pan-Africanist uh, activists. We have 24 ambassadors from uh, eight different countries around the world, which is very exciting to watch our young people from Haiti and Brazil and the United States and Congo and Uganda work together to identify what they have in common, understanding what we don't have in common, but mining those things that connect us and creating potential solutions that can be implemented from a local perspective. And then we also very much focus on IC Justice TV, because we need a media ecosystem that mobilizes and engages people of African descent in this great project of reunification, because there have been so many peaks and valleys in the attempt uh, to bring us together uh, uh, globally over the many, many years, the last 125 years uh, more specifically. And so having a media platform that uses contemporary technology is, is really an exciting way to uh, advance uh, this work. That it is exciting. It is exciting, and I think you made a, an observation that uh, the African communities, the Pan-African communities, are strengthened by coming together. The African diaspora with the people of African descent still living in Africa. How is that the case? And I don't mean to challenge you as much as I'm asking you to educate me, right? Uh, because uh, it isn't intuitive. It isn't obvious to me because I didn't walk your path. Help me understand. When you look at the, the news story uh, that today, of course, captures all of our imagination, it's the horrific war that's happening uh, in uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But one of the stories uh, that has emerged from that unfortunate uh, military uh, horror is that 
Africans who have been studying in Ukraine and living in Ukraine, trying to get out of Ukraine, have experienced some very particular challenges, either in literally leaving the country, but particularly in trying to enter uh, places like Poland and, 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 and Belarus. And what that suggests is that no matter where you are, as a person of African descent, based on your epidermis, there are some social challenges that you are going to face. And so the question then becomes, to whom do you turn uh, when you're in that kind of a situation who is addressing the problem from really the perspective of who we are as, uh, as a Black people uh, globally throughout the world? Now, of course, there's the African Union and there are other bodies, but those bodies tend to be very specifically tied to geographic problems or concerns. There is a need for a body like Interconnected Justice, which would be an intervening body in such a crisis uh, that allows the resources of the diaspora and the continent to converge in helping to bring aid, let's say, to that particular situation. So for example, the United States plays an outsized role in of course, uh, mobilizing and bringing together NATO. Our ambassadors have a pretty amplified microphone. We as people of African descent here in America can leverage our access to the Congressional Black Caucus. They can provide their weight and imprint on an issue like this, while at the same time, we have the African Union or other countries in Africa like Nigeria and Kenya particularly stood up and combine our efforts in our resources to address a problem that is a problem that is really about Black international receptivity uh, uh, on, on the global stage. It shouldn't just be countries in Africa that respond, but people of African descent globally should be responding together as a unified body and voice. It's a great example. I really appreciate you helping me see that clearly. And, and that probably applies to countless problems. That's right, exactly. uh, around the world. So um, I have uh, visited, I think, every country you mentioned by name, uh, except the Congo. Uh, mm. But uh, it, it's interesting, as we think about Haiti uh, is a particular example of, of the African diaspora, but uh, it's, it's a country that uh, really struggles. Uh, most people agree that, that you know it's kind of a, a it's a challenging place, right? It's it's um, one, the, the, I think the poorest country, if we could use that word, and I hate to use that word, but lowest income country of the Western Hemisphere, uh, and then it's so adjacent to the United States, where uh, the African diaspora is now experiencing relative prosperity compared to Haiti. How did bring, how do you bring all those folks together and energize them across such different circumstances? I had the interview, I had the pleasure rather of interviewing the former minister of justice of Haiti. His name is the Honorable Bernard Goose. And uh, we were talking about matters of black liberation and black justice. And he said, Bishop, you know, it's important that I remind you that the uh, Black Lives Matter movement actually started in Haiti. And uh, we started that movement in 1806 uh, when we overthrew the French colonizers who were not only colonizers, but they were our slave masters. And we became the first independent black republic uh, in, uh, in, in, in the world. And the truth is, that because Haiti did what they did then, they have paid the social, economic, and spiritual price 
for embodying the spirit of Black liberation and defiance and self-determination and self-empowerment. They, unlike uh, those who were the architects of the French Revolution, who we revere as being militarily creative and super forward thinking and aspirational around their own political ideology uh, 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 being implemented uh, in their own society, Haitians, of course, are branded as uh, being savage and, 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 and almost um, animalistic because they have been given this badge, again, because they have paid the price for being the first. And unfortunately, people of African descent have not rallied around them and, 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 and really supported Haiti. I speak to the fact that Haiti should be the Black Singapore uh, of the world. It should be the place where we make tremendous economic and social investments and where we return as a bit of a Mecca of liberation for us. That is what Haiti should mean to us, but we have not been educated in such a way to make that kind of connection. And of course, there have been uh, attempts at making that connection. Uh, du Bois did that. Uh, there's a, a big movement uh, in the late 1800s between a very wealthy African-American business person who named a small community in North Carolina, Haiti, And there were uh, two waves of migrations where you had African-Americans leaving North Carolina, going to Haiti. And we're talking about, you know, 3,000 people and then probably about 800 people. But it's representative of these kind of uh, episodic moments where we did have a connectivity to Haiti. So it is possible. Haiti needs and deserves our support because of who they are, who they have been, and who they represent. And I think it's also important to lift up that we talk about Haiti as being poor. And yes, they have the lowest uh, GDP per capita in the Western Hemisphere. But the question is why? After uh, they uh, deposed the French as their colonists and slave masters, the French then visited upon them an economic tax that is unthinkable. The French said there is an opportunity cost to us no longer having you as slaves, which of course means that you don't have the labor cost uh, in your cost of goods when you're talking about uh, developing products. That's a pretty good business as we both know, right? The right, number right. one cost is labor. And so to then tax a country and say for a certain number of years after we de you, you deposed us as slave masters, we are going to tax you for the money that we are losing because you are no longer our slaves. That is a mind-boggling, that's mind-boggling economic quicksand to place a country in. And then of course, when America went in and uh, we occupied Haiti, we made the decision that they really could not manage their gold and their money. And so we took it and we started a bank, uh, which is now called Citibank. And I don't think that money has ever been returned. So um, there are many reasons uh, that Haiti is the country that it is today, but it must become uh, a country that embodies the glory of the African American, the African spirit of, of, of liberation. And that's one of the core projects of interconnected justice. I have great hope for Haiti as difficult as a place as it is both politically, economically, socially, and on many levels, spiritually. Yeah, I, 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 I uh, am moved by your a vision for what Haiti should be as the Singapore of, of the African community, of the Singapore of the West, 
that's a, a profound vision and there's no reason they can't achieve that. Uh, well, and I think right. uh, just delivering that message repeatedly, getting that into the minds of more and more people will ultimately bring that about. So kudos. And may, may I also the, add this about Haiti yeah. that I think is important. I'm sorry to, to interrupt you. It's important for Americans to know that when the Haitians were defeated, Napoleon then realized that the geographic territory that was supposed to be his foothold for expanding the French empire was no longer there. And that is why he sold uh, uh, the Louisiana Purchase to Jefferson for a song because he had no need for that territory anymore because the Haitians um, had deposed him and overthrown his army. That's a really critical thing that most Americans do not know. Our expansion westward on many levels is a result of the Haitian Revolution. That is a spectacular point to make. And I'm so glad you shared that. I, I, I'm Obviously, what you know about Haiti dwarfs what I know, although I've visited several times and I love the country. So I appreciate you educating me. Um, a lot of your work uh, outside of IC Justice is related to advocating for the LGBTQ community. How do you see these two aspects of your work interrelating? It's a, that's a really wonderful question. And I am literally living through what it means uh, for those two streams that flow in me to flow in a way that is very uh, harmonious. I had the pleasure of, of giving a talk to uh, a group of LGBTQ activists recently. And so I'll share a bit of what I shared um, with, with, with them. If you work in a consumer packaged goods company, uh, you might sell coffee, you might sell desserts, uh, you might sell laundry detergent or paper goods. And so, you know, your concerns within the organization are focused on the product that you sell. But ultimately, the bottom line is that you are working for the profitability of that organization. And there are some areas where you uh, don't have a uh, vertical operation, but it's horizontal. Your sales and distribution force, perhaps your marketing budget, et cetera. What I'm getting at is that in the house of social justice, I believe that LGBTQ dignity is a division. And, 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 and racial justice for uh, people of African descent is a division. Uh, uh, gender justice is a division. Fighting anti-Semitism is a division. But the holding company that we are all working for is a common vision of the world in which all people are free to be who they are and that their destiny will not be bound up by any God-given attribute that someone else deems as making them less viable of a human being. So the deep connection between the work that I do as an LGBTQ advocate and a racial justice advocate is that we're really deconstructing patriarchy, we're deconstructing white supremacy, we're deconstructing, I believe, the unfortunate impacts of capitalism gone amok and rogue and off the rails. Uh, we're also deconstructing Christian hegemony. So these are different rooms in the same house with the same Uber objective. Yeah, uh, well, that, that is just such a great vision. I, I wonder as you think about this, uh, if you had just addressed the intersectionality, right? It, it seems to me one of the things that I'm just beginning to appreciate is that the experience of uh, 
an African-American gay man is different from the experience of an African-American man who's straight or a gay man who's white. And how does how does that work? How do you think about that as one who's nuanced in these issues? How do you think about allowing us, educating us, people like me, who sit on the outside of this, wanting to be an ally and a friend uh, to so many, but struggling to understand. Help me. I deeply appreciate your sensitivity to the nuance because generally speaking, people don't really parse that kind of social line uh, particularly well. They see it as a bit of a blur, but you are absolutely right. The texture of homophobia or resistance to uh, queer love within uh, black communities, particularly black American communities, is very, very, very distinct and unique. I think it really goes back to the transatlantic slave trade and slavery and the ways in which Black men and their bodies were treated and abused whenever someone would try to actually uh, revolt or, or push back or to assert oneself physically. One of the things that we don't talk enough about is that oftentimes, Black men were taken out in, were, were in, into public spaces and they were literally raped uh, by a, 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 a white man to demean them, uh, to degrade them, to put them back into their place. And that kind of degradation of the physical body seeps into the heart and mind of a people and is passed down from one generation to the next. So the fear and the shame that we have as people of African descent in our institutional and historical memory is very specific in terms of what it brings up when we're dealing with or confronting uh, a sexuality that is not heteronormative. And, 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 and so our experience um, very much so impacts uh, the ways in which and the whys and the rationales for uh, homophobia uh, in our community. And again, so many of our women were consistently raped during slavery. Can you imagine being a man in bed with your wife and the master calls her or drags her out to his bedroom in the middle of the night and you can do nothing to prevent it? Your sense of manhood, your sense of your ability to protect your wife and your family is trampled upon. And so that pain has to go somewhere. And so you then define yourself and define your masculinity and your manhood in a very particular way. And so the idea of being a man and a real man and a viable man and being heteronormative have been conflated in a particular way in our community, which causes uh, our sense of manhood to be so defined by external characteristics of how many children can I have or how masculine you know, am I or how strong and virile am I in my physiology and in my physical presentation. And so Black men who are considered effeminate or weak or, or lovers of the same sex are often branded as traitors of real Black masculine identity. And that makes our experience very, very, very unique, uh, both in the world and within our own communities. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, it, uh, I am genuinely amazed. Uh, at how much I am 
learning from you, hearing for the first time. And and I know you're thinking, well, duh, <laughs> Devin, you're a middle-aged white guy. How would you know this? How would you experience this? How would you connect to this? But I, you know, I've done 1,400 of these interviews. <laughs> I've talked to a lot of people. <laughs> and and themes recur, right? And some of the ideas that you've you've shared uh, are familiar, but many, many are fresh. And uh, I'm grateful for you uh, to, to have the courage to share some uh, fresh insights with me to help me get a little closer to understanding. Uh, you've accomplished a lot uh, and uh, have the respect of many, deserve the respect of all. I am grateful for what you're doing. What is your superpower? <laughs> I believe that first and foremost, my superpower is my understanding that I am a reflection of the divine in my full uniqueness and within the full mysterious nature of how in fact all of us are individually but yet collectively a reflection of who the divine is, whether you call God, God, whether it's divine intelligence, the energy or the force, whatever your understanding of that idea and sense of divinity, what my superpower is, is that I have come to embrace, respect, honor, and cherish that I am a full imprint of the design of the divine and that my design as a human being is divine, it is unique, and that my, my imprint is distilled from the mind of God. And I deeply believe that our God view informs our worldview. And we have a, when we have a particular God view that allows it to mirror uh, who we are as human beings, it creates a certain sense of self-esteem and it allows you to believe in your own viability, even when the world challenges that on a daily basis. Yeah, it is a profound insight to view yourself to see yourself as uh, being uh, the image of the divine or a product of the divine. Yeah, I, 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 that is a profoundly important message for everyone, for Absolutely. everyone, and, and with, but no exceptions, right? That's right. No, no one's flawed. Right? Uh, we're all divine creations. Uh, that's, that's profoundly important. Uh, as you think about that uh, insight, I wonder if you can identify for us a time when that knowledge was important to you, uh, where it mattered, it helped you succeed, overcome a problem uh, or something else. Uh, how is it relevant, I guess, in a way I'm asking? I was uh, born and raised in Harlem uh, in the very late uh, 60s and, and raised in the early 70s. I was raised in the cradle of the Pentecostal church. And as a child born four months before Dr. King was killed and the judge Katanji, hopefully justice soon Katanji Brown Jackson talked about the fact that she saw herself as being the promise of the civil rights movement. I myself also uh, am a, 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 a peer of hers in, 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 in that regard. I was raised 
with my parents believing that I could emerge as the promise of all the work and all the accomplishments of the civil rights movement. And I say that just to lift up the degree to which I loved my community. The church was an epicenter of social change and social justice. But growing up as a being who understood that I was different, but also a being who understood that I had this capacity to minister. I had this capacity for social justice. There was, if I can use the spiritual term, oil on my head uh, from the time that I was a child that was recognized and honored by my community. But because I was different, uh, it challenged my ability to actually ultimately thrive uh, in my community. And when I was in my early 20s after college, returning back to my church as a minister, my very best friend in the church uh, was getting married and he asked me to be his best man. And of course I said, yes, but I was really wrestling with this process of coming out. Uh, my friends uh, were, were mostly secular and they were standing on the sidelines rooting for me to come out, come out, we're here for you. Uh, and I was trying to deal with, but what does that mean? I'll lose my place in line. Uh, I'm set up to possibly be a prince of the church. You want me to give that up and, and, and forfeit that and lay that down. But through therapy and prayer and, and just my personal desire to live the truth, I came out to my best friend. And I did it in love and in honesty. And I said, I don't want to stand next to you and next to your bride, who are you're both very dear to me, and not tell you the truth. And they went to our pastor and they outed me and they told him that I had come and made this confession. And then they asked me to not be in the wedding. It broke my heart. It was the beginning of the end. This was the church that had informed, cradled, and loved me and molded me to be on many levels who I was. And that was a defining moment for me where I had to reach for a new understanding of who I was as an expression of the divine. And if I weren't able to find, hold, and grasp and be anchored in that, I would have fallen and I would have slid. But thank God, that was the, the, a key and critical moment in time in my life in which this understanding of my being a divine design really manifested in my heart, mind, and soul. And that knowledge became embodied in me, giving me the strength to really stand, make a sharp turn in my life that completely transformed my life and set me on a path, establishing my feet to walk and do the work uh, that my hands do today. What a critical time in my life. And I'm so very grateful that I was able to not only see the insight and hear it, but internalize it and act on it. Wow. That is a, a profoundly painful, yes. but inspiring story. Uh, I'm sorry that you went through that, but I am so glad that you were able to identify that divine nature in yourself. Yes. And, and recognize its reality and move forward in a positive way. I, I wonder if you have advice. Certainly, I, I think you must. You must have counseled people to find that faith that you have, that sense of the divine in themselves. How do you coach people to find that for themselves? The first thing that I do is to hopefully offer them a certain sense of practicality 
about the truth of their current and lived reality. Because one of the advantages that I had, and I mentioned the fact that my friends from college were, you know, many of them is seculars or very progressive believers. I mentioned them because they were a base for me. So that when I pivoted and exited stage right from the church, I did not just kind of meander into a world of nothingness, but I had a loving, solid, and concrete base uh, to hold me up. So one of the first things that I try to do with people is really assess what is the truth of your lived reality. I don't tell everybody to come out in the ways in which I did, because you have to have a landing point. And so it's so important for people while they're doing the work of kind of deconstructing a poor and a poor internalized the, the, theological system, that they also do the practical work of building a solid social and financial base for themselves so that as they exit, they are able to do so in a way where their life is not going to fall apart. So there are some real practical things that I encourage people to do while I then minister to them around the social ideals and social aspirations and spiritual ideals that really confront uh, negative thinking uh, about who we are and that who we are could be anything from your racial identity, your sexuality, your, your gender identity, you know, just a sense of yourself in terms of where you might be from the world regionally or geographically within the United States. There's so many uh, uh, different influences that cause us to think that we're othered or, or less than. And whatever it is, make sure that you have a practical base of support and a place to land. And then of course, we can then embark on a great spiritual journey and look at spiritual writings and spiritual practices and ideals and meditations uh, and other kinds of uh, spiritual work that one can do to really heal one's spirit. Yeah. Well, it is just uh, a joy for me to connect with you. I'm grateful for you sharing these profound insights, top to bottom. Uh, I, I hope my audience members will take the time to listen to this twice or 12 times. Uh, I think there's a lot to learn. Uh, before you go, will you take just a minute and tell people how they can learn more about IC Justice and how they can connect with you personally? Oh, absolutely. Thank you for that opportunity. Uh, you certainly can find us at the letter I, the letter C, justice.org. Uh, it's Interconnected Justice is our, is our uh, institutional name, but we are affectionately known as IC Justice because that is what I wanted every person who participates in this movement to have a vision of. It is a vision of justice. The moral arc of the universe, it does bend uh, toward justice. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram at IC Justice org and please on Facebook visit us uh, in particular because that's where we house IC Justice TV where we have uh, a monthly show the Pan-African Perspective where we look at all sorts of social and political issues but from a Pan-African uh, perspective and certainly personally you can find me at Joseph Tolton uh, on Facebook or uh, on Instagram and I would love to personally uh, be in touch with as many of you um, as is logistically possible. Thank Thank you, Devin. That's very gracious of you. Thank you. Thank you, Joseph. And, and again, we wish you every success in your incredibly important work at IC Justice and, and in your other activities as well. Uh, the world needs your leadership and we want you to be successful. Bless you. Thank you so, so much. I am better off for having had this opportunity. And thank you for your work uh, as yeah, well. It's you. much appreciated. Thank you. Now, let's do some good. Amen. Absolutely. Some good trouble.
<laughs> there we go. <laughs> trouble. I love it. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in to the Superpowers for Good show. Twice each week, we host changemakers who share their impact, insights, and superpowers. Don't miss another episode. Subscribe today at superpowersforgood.com. That's superpowers, number four, good.com. Be super empowered. Get your copy of the book, Superpowers for Good, as an ebook, audiobook, paperback, or hardcover edition via your favorite online retailer. Interested in having me speak to your company, organization, or association? Visit devonthorpe.com. Then let's talk. Now, keep using your superpowers for good. Together, we can reverse climate change, improve global health, and eradicate poverty.